Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, the Other People podcast is offered freely. All episodes of this show are available for free, more than 500 episodes and counting. There's an official Other People app, that too is free. Everything is free. Your support makes a difference. If you would like to support this program, you can do so at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Thanks. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person. Hello, everybody. Hey, how's it going? This is the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. I'm sitting here. I'm standing here. I'm here. I'm in Los Angeles. The Hollywood sign, it's right outside. It's somewhere up there. It's visible. It's hot. still feels like summer out here. Everything's fucked up. Fuck everything. This has been a fucked up week. Do you watch the news? Fucked up. Fucked up country. Everything's fucked. Um, Mark Leidner is my guest today. He's got a story collection out from Tyrant Books. The story collection is called Under the Sea. Mark Leidner is the guest. Uh, I've been a fan of Mark's for a while. I like his Twitter. I like his book of aphorisms. There's something sort of uh, mysterious about his online presentation, at least through uh, my eyes. And so I found myself, like over the years, being curious about who he is because it's a little opaque. It's a little, it's a little uh, undefined. Like, I don't think he posts pictures of himself. Like, that's not his avatar. You know what I'm saying? Those people who they use like a, a color or an image or something that's not them as their avatar. And then it's like, who are they? Maybe I should do that. I guess I kind of do on the other people Twitter feed. But anyway, I, uh, I'm just excited to have a conversation on the record with Mark Leidner. And it was a really good one. And I'm going to share it with you in just a moment. What did I do today? Well, today is Saturday. I'm recording this on a Saturday. And I drove down to San Diego to work with a uh, dog trainer. I'm taking Twiggy to this dog trainer to get help, to get her like, uh, extra obedient. (laughs) Uh, and you know, I think I got to explain that, uh, I mean, it's, it's good to train your dog. I'm one of those, I'm very pro train your dog. 
I don't like people who project their own emotional stuff onto their dog and they're like, just let the dog be free when the truth is that they feel unfree and so they want their dog to be free as some sort of like outward expression of the lack of uh, liberty that they are plagued with or whatever internally. Train your dog. Your dog's annoying. You're annoying. Go away. Train your dog. People like to be around a dog that's well-behaved. The dog will get petted more. It'll get pet more. It'll get petted more. You know what I'm talking about. Train your fucking dog. So on top of that, you know, my son has uh, physical disabilities and, uh, you know, he's down on the floor. The dog is kind of a spaz. She's 10 months old. And plus like just moving around, I want to have off leash control of this dog so I can have my hands free to help my son if he needs it. And just like generally, like if I go hiking, I don't want to have the dog on a leash, but I want the dog to stay with me. I don't want her to get eaten by a coyote. I don't want a dog fight. I don't want her jumping on people. I don't want an annoying dog. I want a dog people like. Train your dog. I'm going to train my dog. But I feel like I need a little help just because I'm so busy. So I saw this woman out uh, on the hiking trail one day, and she had this dog that was just beautifully trained, just staying right with her. You could tell that she'd put a lot of work into it. And I talked to her. She recommended this guy. He just happens to be in San Diego, which is like logistically ridiculous that I'm doing this now. I'm already running myself ragged. Now I'm getting up like before the sun rises on Saturday mornings, driving down to San Diego. So I can be with this guy. He's like a former Marine. (laughs) We're like doing drills. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm not going to compete. I'm not that guy. I'm not going to be like a competitive dog obedience person. I just want a well-trained, polite animal. My kids, if I, if I have my way on planet earth, if I can do one thing, polite kids and a polite dog, that's all I want. Mission, like my mission will be complete at that point. I just want my kids to be polite, nice to be around, respectful of people. I want my dog to be a joy and to do whatever the fuck I say. Now I was joking too. My kids probably are not going to be obedient right? That's not what kids do. My wife doesn't listen to me. My kids, they kind of listen to me. Like very few people listen to me. My dog, maybe my dog will listen to me. Maybe that's what I'm trying to do here. Maybe this is a cry for help. This is what happens. You get to middle age. No one listens to you. You have a podcast. You drive down to San Diego to work with a Marine to get your dog to heal off leash. Is that what you do? Is that where I am? Is this sad? Uh, Mark Leitner is my guest today. His new story collection is called Under the Sea. It's available from Tyrant Books. This is Mark Leitner. Are you ready? They're, they're, and they're also a fun challenge to write. They're very difficult. Yeah. Or, um, I, was, I was flipping through that book, um, The Angel and the Dream of Our, of Our Hangover, recently and there are I don't even stand behind all the aphorisms that are in there anymore but there are a few that I do and I'm really surprised like oh that somehow is still true to me or true enough Um, but I I love to write them because they're it's very hard to say anything definitively within any format of of anything so to try to also do it in a small amount of space is it's like you know, it's like haiku. It's it seems small, so it wouldn't take that long. But it 
it's it's almost impossible to write a good aphorism and that's what's interesting about them okay so how do you like what's the difference between working on an aphorism versus working on a short story or a longer piece like I'm trying to imagine because I've never written aphorisms before. Like I'm trying to imagine the process of composition. Like is it a lot of just sitting there? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think at first that's what I thought it was when I was interested in it. I was like, well, okay, now just think deep about the thing. And I quickly realized that that doesn't yield any good aphorisms. And what I came to by trying to do it, and Twitter helped with this, was that it really. It's not about trying to th say something that is thoughtful or deep. It's more about just finding one verb or one word that is really complicated and paints a vivid picture. And then asking yourself, how could this relate to something else? So, you know, like Jigsaw Puzzle, like it paints such a complicated picture in your head. And then you think, what could a jigsaw puzzle be like? And so for me, it's that. It's an analogy game of thinking of a vivid image or word and then being like, what's something that's surprising that I could compare this to that is also somewhat truthful? Um, so you you're, you end up you, where you end up with the, with the little pithy truth that you have is a surprise to you or is to me when I get there. And a, and a few, like some of them have held up over the years. Some of them. But some of them you're like, no. <laughs> yeah. I guess that's natural. Yeah. I think that the, it's like this, the, the risk of being wrong is very high in an aphorism, whereas in a lot of like lyrical poetry, there's no right or wrong. Like you're not, you're not going out on a limb and staking like this is what love is or, you know, or right. if it's good poem, usually you're not. But, right. um, but with an aphorism, you're, you're kind of, it's like a game of chicken. You want to say something that feels like you're stepping out on a limb, but it ha it can't be so anodyne that if I'm pronouncing that word right, I don't know. I think you got it. That uh, those are my least favorite kinds of aphorisms that seem to be saying something truthful, but are just so vague or um, untruth or like n just not, they just the author didn't go far enough in risk anything. Like those would be on, you know, like little. Tea, tea towel trinkets that you might buy and hang in your bathroom. Well, and uh, your publisher, Ken, who published that book of uh, aphorisms, he just published a book that has aphorisms in it. Yeah. So he's, he's tried that. I find that form thrilling when, when it, when it works, you know, when I read one that really hits, uh, I don't know what it is, but I, I, I think there's something so cool about being that brief and that deep. Or at least getting, you know, the way that it gets me thinking. It's true. However, like the flip side is that they're very, um, or one of the things that initially attracted me to them is that I think they're looked down on by serious, you know, literary critics or, or writers. And, no wonder I like them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but they, they should be looked down on because they are like a little, it's like candy almost you can think of you can read a really good book of aphorisms and like ooh 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 that's thoughtful that's thoughtful oh yeah history is like that oh yeah experience is like that and then you know it's just a little dopamine hit that doesn't often resonate forever like i've read many many books of aphorisms by like what's his name c-i-o-r-a-n i don't know how to pronounce it but an awesome truly fearless and 
often disturbing aphorist, but I don't remember any of them. I could say the same thing about most books I've read. Yeah, that's true. I like my memory for like, I wish I had better recall, uh, for what I've read, but the truth is that very little sticks, but they, right. But it's okay. I think to, to not remember the words, but the things that I do remember that come back to me when I'm in crisis or, um, or that I rely on as, wow, I don't know what I'm doing with my life right now, or I'm really worried about this. The things that do float back to me are stories um, or or poems, but not aphorisms. I, and I won't even remember a whole poem. I'll just remember that feeling like, oh, yeah, that's uh, the second coming poem. And that's this feeling. And I I can use that somehow to, I don't remember the whole poem, but like. I remember the feeling. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Do you have books, like you talk about this, but like you have books that you rely on, kind of like life rafts or whatever, you know, when things go sideways. Like, are there tons of them or are there just like a small few? Like, what are some books of you, like that you've read that you feel that way about? I think that often really when I'm really, truly, uh, worried or afraid or depressed or, or something like that, I'll go all the way back to the Bible or like parables of basically Christ parables. Those stories, um, to me always yield like that calm me down they sort of explain to me like you know something that feels useful at the moment um so i love old religious texts and in a way stripped from the religion around them but the actual um text and i don't like open the bible and read them i'll just like um i have this document on a computer of like you know parables from various gospels. I don't even not, not sure what gospel they come from, but I'll I'll sometimes reread them or try to like, oh, I'm often inspired by them. I'll try to reformulate them in other contexts. Um other books like that are like The Odyssey or um a lot of classics and um what else? I love myth and I love texts that are literature but are considered religion or myth or things like that in those i find the most kind of depth and sustained like complexity often 
Um, That's how I feel about uh, like some Thoreau. Like I guess I like I was I just read a biography of him, so he's fresh on my mind. But like this ambition that he had to sit down and write like in his time modern scripture. Like that's a really high ambition. Yeah. But I wish more people did that. You know, like because he was going for the, he was going for the the big fish. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. I don't know. I, I think that that's a a worthy pursuit, even if like you're like statistically doomed to failure, like almost. You know what I'm saying? Like there's a high high degree of failure, sort of like with aphorisms. <laughs> totally. Um, it's very yeah, because it's like a dogmatic, or it can it lends itself to dogmatism, and that's such a it's so grotesque when you encounter it in like writing often, unless it's very complicated. And, um, you know, a lot of poetry is basically religious, you know, musings and, and half of the Bible is, or a lot of the Bible is just, uh, poetry, you know, it's just Proverbs and Psalms and the, the poetry of a particular people. So I love it. I love it when, um, poets today, right verse that is in some way engaged in in that and trying to be like a religious text because i wonder you know it's only time time passing is what i think usually makes something religion and in the moment you know when when whoever was writing psalms they're just annoying they <laughs> right, right exactly <laughs> they were just yeah right, they were just writing poems and everyone was you know probably be booing them or ignoring them but time you know, all the forces of history piled up and those things became, you know, the word of God. And so uh, it's like, like, okay, so let, let me just use a popular example. Cause I think about this sometimes like Mary Oliver, mm -hmm. you ever read her? I've read a little bit. I mean, I know some famous poem of hers. Yeah. She's got a lot. She's, but uh, she's like super popular in, sure. in so far as a poet in America can be popular today. And I think that her critics sometimes knock her for that sort of like earnest dogmatism or like overt spirituality. And in my head, cause I'm a fan, like I'm an unabashed fan. I love the, I love her poetry. Like yeah. it makes me, like it makes me feel like all warm inside, <laughs> like in, in a genuine way, like not in a way that like afterwards you're like, Oh, is that like a sugar high? Right. And so when you say time, uh, really is the thing that distinguishes a piece of literature from having that sort of, uh, gravity or whatever. I could, I can see her work aging well. And sure. that once you have the benefit of like decades and centuries, no one's going to be quite so miffed by that. Let's say the world was destroyed, you know, in some kind of apocalyptic event or most of it was. And, um, the few, you know, people who survived, like, you know, eating, eating beans and cans and like cannibalism, like whatever it takes, you know, like there's 10 people left on the planet. They're like, everything is burnt and they find some tattered generations later living in this post-apocalyptic desert. They find some tattered paper that has a Mary Oliver poem on it with no memory of who Mary Oliver was or how anything occurred before. Um, that would definitely become a religious text, especially if they understood it and, you know, could gain some insight about it. Like, Oh my God, this piece of paper is telling us to relax but everything around us is telling us not to relax. You know, right. this is this is this is holy. There, there used to be birds, right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. I guess I, I just find myself uh, cheering that sort of thing on, even in its even when it misses the mark. Like I, I'm I'm a huge fan of that 
pursuit. And, uh, I don't understand. There's like, I think sometimes, especially there's something very urban, I guess, in my association, I feel like there's like this kind of cynical, like, uh, okay. Write a poem about a bird or, you know, and some of those poems can really suck. I get that. But like, I think it's, I think it's a hundred percent, uh, appropriate to be grappling with like the wonders of the natural world as a human being. Like it's so easy to miss. There's fucking birds flying around, you know, like just the majesty of it and the mystery, like the deep mystery of what the hell's going on. Like I, I agree. I mean, every, every leaf, every like vein of every leaf in the world is a miracle. Yeah. So it is like, the problem is if that's all anybody ever says, it's a cliche and it becomes like a way to avoid deep reflection it's like yeah birds are beautiful i'll put a bird up on it and like and wash my hands of having to worry about nature or think deeply about it or examine myself in light of it but the pendulum swings so the pendulum swings away from nature and nature poems are you know gross and uncool and um you know redneck or or somehow not urban urbane or something but then whatever is the new thing will get played out and like nature will seem a gritty oh my confessional. God. Yeah. Gritty confessional. Nature. Like mm-hmm. it's amazing. It's just, it's like a giant, it's a giant pendulum and it's like whatever's uncool will soon become cool and whatever's cool will soon become uncool. So yeah, so you can't worry about it. And I like to like find the things that are the most uncool and play with them and think about them or try to, you know, use them try to write a nature poem that's like try to write a good nature poem what would that take and i think i always learn a lot when i try to like like this why i was attracted to aphorisms they're they're not cool um but they're kind of cool now some some people post aphorisms and you know have like big exhibits and have following on instagram of tens thousands or whatever so it's just, could have been you, dude. <laughs> I don't want that. <laughs> <laughs> so you talked about the Bible, like having resonance for you. Like, were you raised with religion? Because you're from South Georgia. I'm from South Georgia, so very much in the Bible Belt. And uh, but I was raised Catholic, as was I, and very like very religiously or very uh, strictly. So, what does that mean? Well, maybe not very compared to some people, but. We had to go to church on Sunday, no question. And um, and my dad was kind of um, paranoid that, like, in our small little community, the worry in the family was that um, we would make too many friends with Baptists and or Methodists and that we might go Protestant. So that was a weird little feeling or... Um, thing to navigate then and so i think we were even more trained to be catholic and be good catholics that's sad as i I was raised catholic but never really i went to a lot of church i got confirmed and all that but like i never really responded well to it uh i don't know the difference like what's that like what what is the difference between a catholic and a protestant how do you grade it out like what's the what's the issue (laughs) wow well (laughs) it's funny there's it's. It reminds me a lot of um, this uh, the narcissism of small differences, and how 
I think human beings maybe hate each other more when they're very similar but only slightly different than if they're very different. And so, but technically, I guess a Catholic believes in what? Well, one way to think about it is the history of Europe. And the, at one point, the Roman Empire was kind of all over Europe. And then they became Catholic. So Catholicism had this kind of imperial, like high power, high wealth. You know, it kind of represented the monarchy, the monarchists of monarchies. And then so when monarchies began to lose a little bit of steam, some people were like, why don't we just take what Jesus said and get rid of all the gold and the glitz and the power structure and the hierarchy and yeah. like, let Farmer Dan have a church. And Farmer Dan is now reading the Bible to Farmer Dan and all his friends. And what's wrong with that? And the Catholicism was like, that's not real. That's not. So they were protesting the all the old rules that had calcified, I think, throughout the ages. Uh-huh. And it was a way of democratizing Christianity. So Protestants were kind of a democratizing. You're selling me on Protestantism Christian. right now. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. And then, but I, I sympathize with both perspectives and also with all other perspectives that are not Christian. But... Um, yeah, there's also little things like Catholics have to go to confession to be forgiven for their sins. And do you do Protestants a lot of that? Are like, no, I don't often go to confession. I don't, I have a very, um, are you still practicing? It's complicated. It's very, um, sometimes I'll go to church and I'll often get angry with what is being said. Yeah. And then I'll, I'll be like, well, maybe I shouldn't go to church then. Cause I don't agree with that. And then I'll miss my mom or something, you know, is she no longer with us? Yeah. Oh. And I'll, or I'll go through some phase where I need some connection to something uh-huh. and I need, I need to be part of something bigger than myself. So I'll go back and there'll, there'll be a beautiful song and I'll sing it and uh, something I would never otherwise do and participate in this community. And I see like, so I often I'll go back to see the beautiful parts of, of, church um and it's just very fluid for me yeah um and i i like going and i like what it i like what it gives me um but i am sort of selective in what i choose to believe from i think i think the religion people are yeah especially now like i was just my parents are still very devout and like i was talking to them yesterday i think and I was like, because with all this, uh, the new round of um, child abuse, you know, the scandal in Pennsylvania, and now like Pope Francis knew and Pope Benedict knew, and I'm just like, I was like, guys, what about like Episcopalians? Like it's like Catholic <laughs> light without the, you know? but yeah. I, I was, I said it somewhat in jest, and like the, I was kind of also acknowledging how in a way that's not the same for me, how deeply embedded Catholicism is with the, um, my parents' sense of personal identity. They've been with it their whole lives. That's a powerful thing. Yeah. Like the way, the ways in which we, um, identify ourselves like, uh, institutionally and otherwise, you know, it's, it's powerful. Even in the face of like stuff like that, I was like trying to think of other organizations or institutions that would be able to survive like that level of corruption with its uh, constituency, like at least somewhat intact and it's few and far between. It's a very, it's, it's a, it's a mystery 
why people remain religious after their religions commit atrocities. I mean, the whole history of the world is a history of religious atrocities and horrible crimes committed in the name of God or, or, or any other, you know, religious figure or God or gods. So it's almost crazy to think that anyone would want to continue to follow that. Um, but sometimes I think that there is something beautiful about every religion at, at, at its core. There is something good and it's actually so good, whatever it is relative to whatever the hell else is in the world, um, that it's very attractive and it attracts all kind of shit and evil piles up on top of it and just kind of coasts on the good thing and until, you know, that evil gets out of control and destroys things. So I don't, I don't, I don't even, I don't even try to care about what I believe. Um, I kind of just follow what I need to believe in the moment and what guides me to do better things or what I perceive to be better things. And often it's thinking about like, wow, Jesus, if I even believe, let's just pretend that that's real. Or even if it's not real, if it's a fictional story, it's still a wonderful role model given the alternatives. And, um, and I'll, 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 I think sometimes I'm like, I walk into church and I'm like, everything, a lot of this is creepy and, um, politically more than problematic. It's, uh, offensive sometimes and but it's really the only place you can go or one of the few places you can go to feel for me that connection to that person or god or whatever the, and also the to other people yeah like you walk the- into a church and you see tons of strangers of different economic classes than you might otherwise encounter in your daily life and you hug them and you shake their hand you touch them and you sing with them. And there's something really beautiful about that that I just don't don't see it elsewhere. Right. Um, Burning Man this week. Come on. Yeah. Lots well, of touching. What's so strange to me is that, <laughs> that, uh, that the, the thing that people always thought of as evil in the church was the money and this like accumulation of wealth and power. And now I look around in like some of the cities I've lived in and all the cathedrals are, are capitalist and the, the churches and the real power and the money is not held by, um, like some little church on the side of the road that only has 14 people in it. It's all the other stuff that we do in this country that is, um, hoarding all the riches and, uh, um, perhaps you know arguably not not using them responsibly or whatever so it's like i almost think everything is a church and they're all corrupt so which one is the least corrupt and sometimes that's just fishing i'm gonna go fishing on sunday and that's the thing i'm doing i'm gonna literally commune with nature you go fish do you fish a lot yeah not a lot but i wish i wish i fished more like fly fishing i've never fly fished but i only like we we grew up on a pond, so we would fish all the time. So whenever I go back home, we'll fish. I use fishing because I think that's what 
the dad does in fried green tomatoes. And I always Plus, think like, teach Amanda fish. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but um, I don't know. It's complicated. It's hard to find any institution that isn't corrupt, and certainly the more power they have, the more corrupt they are. And But does it destroy the ability to go into a church and, like, have a private, mo- private moment with uh, God or whatever God is to you or isn't? Um, I don't know. I don't know if it ruins it. It doesn't ruin it for me, but it certainly makes me angry. Yeah, and I think, too, like, if you're going to see the kinds of radical changes that need to happen, at least from my perspective, it's probably going to come from the bottom up. I mean, isn't it always the case? Like, you can sit around, you're going to wait a long time if you think, like, these changes are going to come from the Vatican. I I struggle to believe that that's going to happen. If Pope Francis isn't going to be able to do it, because he seems like cool Pope to me. (laughs) Yeah. Um, At some point, people like yourself or other constituents are going to have to or parishioners or whatever are going to have to just start to organize and uh, do it from the bottom up and like lead the way. Yeah, I'd be. I don't think I'm the man for the job, but <laughs> I'm trying to. I'm no, trying but to like it. I do think of this often is that we uh, even in, in the church history they valorize um, often people who were reformers and basically reformers who are willing to like die for it. Sure, and then so. It's like someone's like, this is fucked up what you're doing. Um, I'm going to stab myself in the eye on the altar if you don't stop doing it. And they're like, well, we're just going to kill you. And then they kill him. And then like 30 years later, somebody wins a war and that policy changes. And like, no, that guy's a saint. You know, yeah, like, yeah. it's just it's almost like in order to reform properly, you have to be willing to completely sacrifice yourself with the with no hope of it ever changing. And and then just hope that that inspires others to change. And I think I wish I had the courage to do that. I don't, I doubt that I do. Something or like that almost, like that. there feels like an echo in in the uh, literary pursuit to that. It's because it's like a mostly hopeless endeavor. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, it's like you're putting your book out there and like, uh, like a, a very, very small number of books really land but like there is some hope that maybe it inspires other works or maybe over time it passes, you know, from hand to hand to hand to hand. Or, I mean, there's a million stories of, of uh, books finding new life decades after their publication or suddenly becoming appreciated in ways that the author never would have imagined. Or, it's, it's true. Um, and even in your own life, you know, I feel like sometimes a person who is a writer and who tries to write, um, even if they never write a book, maybe just that. Like, for instance, my mom always had kind of artistic aspirations, and she never wrote a book or made a painting or so, but she would sketch, and she would always be frustrated that um, none of her ideas maybe ever seemed to become real enough. But she had the urge, and she, she took little steps here and there to try to express that urge, and... I'm certain that it inspired me unconsciously. So even the work could even never occur. But if you're someone in someone else's life who takes time to try to make something beautiful, you have no idea like what that would do to the people who see that or the friends, family members, etc. Um, 
there's this poem by Kafavi. I forgot how to pronounce. I don't, I never knew how to pronounce his name. I think he's a Greek poet, but it's called The First Step. And it's like, it's really short, but it's like, um, oh man, it was like one guy is complaining to another. It's like, I've only written 14 odes and no one's ever appreciated my work. And what do I do? Like my whole life is a waste. I care really a lot about this thing and no one cares about it. And the other person is like, but you've already done it. You've already done the most important thing. You, this is the, the, this is a ladder and you're on the first step. And that's the only step that really matters. You took the first step and that's the most beautiful thing that could ever occur. And that's a a rough paraphrase of the poem, but I love that poem. And, uh, it's important to do what you do regardless of the outcome. And that's try, I try to do that. I try to believe that. So, uh, raised in the the deep South is is Tifton, Georgia, the deep South. Would you, yeah, that's pretty, I mean, South Georgia is, if that's not the deep South, what is right? That's, that's true. So, but it was like fishing in a pond rural i'm trying to get a picture yeah we lived out in the woods um we had like a kind of a big house but land is cheap so it doesn't mean like necessarily wealth but we're definitely middle class straight up the middle um but yeah surrounded by trees and uh had a pond and um deer everywhere mosquitoes bugs house falling apart gotta mow the lawn every day or like you know feels like you gotta mow every day and there's like a massive lawn and the lawnmower breaks down because there's sticks everywhere because there's so many trees and it's just but yeah that's where my parents raised us and that's where they had jobs so what'd they do my dad is still an ag journalist and he writes um he covers like the peanut industry and various other farm uh, parts of ag in South Georgia and all around the Southeast for a bunch of magazines. And my mother was a natural resource conservationist for the USDA. So she built the pond that's on our house and built a lot of the ponds and um, helped farm, built a lot of the ponds in our community and helped farmers basically use better practices to prevent erosion or to, um, Particip- be able to more efficiently participate in federal programs. So even though she, this is a point my sister made at her funeral, which is like one of my favorite memories, uh, even though she was a, an aspiring artist who always felt frustrated, if you just drive around our hometown, like the land itself is more beautiful and more um, helps more people. And you can drive past a pond that she designed and you can know that she did it. So it's like the land was her materials. And she never considered that, um, you know, an arts practice. Isn't that funny? Yeah. I mean, you know, she's like, no, no, just beautifying the earth, <laughs> you know, like beautifying an entire community, uh, helping it thrive, making it more pleasing to look at, and yet never allowing herself a moment to be like, well, you know what? That's my art project. I think that's a really good point. Yeah. I think a lot of people... You know, uh, I think especially we we imagine today, um, me and many of my friends are like, everyone's an artist and we just just like make stuff on our laptops. And uh, it wasn't like this back then, like in some weird fake past of like the 50s, even like even those people, whatever they were doing, whoever they are, whatever their flaws are, 
they were probably taking it just as seriously and you know insurance sales was that guy's art form and um working some government job or like everybody i've ever known who i really knew well whatever they did they they took it as seriously as an art form and it has a lot of the same qualities except they just got paid for it did your mom want to be a painter she would sketch, but she never painted. I know, but I mean, like, but did she, was that like, cause I, what I'm getting at is like, I think sometimes people can get a fixed idea of the kind of artist they think they should be. Oh yeah. So it's like, I should be a fine artist and that's their benchmark for quote unquote success. Exactly. And it's like, if I'm not Monet or whatever, uh, then it didn't happen. And meanwhile, there's this entire other life happening and all of this creative output that's taking uh, but it's in a form that they didn't associate with the, their idea of success. You see what I'm getting at? I think every artist does that, or almost everybody I've ever known, there's, at least, and it's very true for me, there's the thing you wish you could do. Which is for you? Um, early on, it was to write fiction. Um, and, I mean, I don't know, we could go all the way back to, like, when I was a little kid, I wanted to be, like, a theologist. I wanted to... I really loved going to church. I thought I was really good at going to church and I was really religious and I knew all the prayers and everything. And I was really interested in, well, how do we know about God? Like, well, how do, who is that? And who decided that this is the way to talk to him? And so I was fascinated by that. And I think absurdly, that was one of my earliest wishes. And I grew up and was like, that's stupid. There's no, theology is so just, that's, that's terrible. I'm never going to, whatever. So I just like abandoned it. And I was like into politics and I was like, politics, that's where it's at. That's where really the, I could get into politics. I should go to law school and like run for governor someday or something. I don't know. Make I didn't a difference. know. I, I had no idea what politics even was. I just knew that it was this like locus of, of meaning and interestingness and power. And like, what, it, what if you could get your hand in there and help things or make them better? And then you know, then I was like, wait a minute, that's, that's ridiculous. I'm not going to law school. I, I, <laughs> I worked at a law firm for two years in college. I like, I was not in, when I saw the, how the sausage was made, I was like, no, never, I'm never doing this. Um, so then I was like, well, what about writing? So every, every life decision seems like it's all, well, I'm always substituting in something inferior for what I really want. And eventually you just get stuck with one thing and you forget it's like your 50th choice and it becomes your identity and it's your main choice. But even, even within writing, I wanted to be a fiction writer. Couldn't, no one liked my stories. They were all horrible, but like I could write goofy jokes and they called that poem and they call them poems and the people like those. So then I was like a poet and it was like, you find yourself, I, I don't know, I, I don't, this is an aphorism and I don't actually stand behind it, but like, you don't get to do what you want to do. You only can do what you can do. And turns out after all these years, the, we're talking about religion on this podcast and like that original impulse to like think about God or what it is or what it isn't and what it is in the world and all that is still. So you can want to be a painter and not be good enough and then you sketch and then you give up on sketching and become a forester and then you give up forester and you become an astronaut and then you end up painting you know i feel like it even when you are, are failing you're somehow if you're 
if you're trying, you're moving hopefully or possibly toward an original impulse. Yeah. And it's like the, it finds its expression. You yeah. Know, whatever it is, that's a central preoccupation or whatever the mission is that you've, uh, defined for yourself or attached to, it's going to come out one way or the other. Yeah. Like even if you're writing aphorisms, but you wanted to be a politician, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, it's going to, it's going to show itself. Um, I've had similar thoughts in my life. You know, I think I, I had an idea early in my career about wanting to be a fiction writer in the mold of these like writers that I was grabbing onto at that age. And then it changes, you know, life has its own ideas. And I guess I struggle sometimes wondering like, uh, wanting to have a clear sense of exactly what it is I'm supposed to be doing. Hmm. I guess that's common, especially yeah. creatively. Like I envy people who have that like really clear sense of mission <laughs> or, or maybe they've just decided they found their little thing, their 50th choice, and they're just going all in, you know what I'm saying? Without any kind of like looking back or self-doubt. Yeah. It's, I think purpose is like the, it's like the ultimate drug. And if you can get it, it's awesome. And it makes everything easier. I remember, um, yeah, moments in my life when I've had such a, a, an overwhelming sense of purpose they're great. You don't question it. And you're actually, it's okay to fail because the purpose is clear, but it's when you don't have purpose and you're like, Oh my God, what should I be doing? Should I even write the novel? That's when the the idea of the novel not being good becomes terrible yeah. or like so anxious or, or worrying. Well, it's like, the, wasn't it the Nietzsche quote? Like if you have a strong enough, why the how takes care of itself or something like that? Yeah. Like, you know, so it's maybe get clear about why you're doing it. I love this movie that I uh, just rewatched. It's called Quest for Fire. It's from 1982, and it's about cavemen set 80,000 years ago. It sounds like a bad movie, but it's awesome. And I don't, I can't believe nobody, nobody thinks about it or talks about it. But these two, these three cavemen, uh, their tribe loses fire. They had a little fire, and it's like the source of their whole life. If they lose this flame, it's hard to make fire 80,000 years ago, so they got to protect it. Some other tribe comes in and, like, throws them out of their cave, and then they lose their fire as they're fleeing. And these guys just have to get fire. Like, if they don't get it, they're dead, their family's dead, everybody they know is dead. There's no, there's no room for anything other than purpose. And it's like... I just, I don't know, I guess get, I get excited just thinking about like, man, what is mine? Like find it, like figure it out and like go for it. I was going to say, do you feel a sense of, do you feel a strong sense of purpose? Like, it seems like it comes and goes. Yeah. Like how do you sustain a life of like ser serious mission or whatever that sense of mission? I think it really, unfortunately, the only true cause of an overwhelming sense of purpose is trauma. For me, it's like to to suffer enough where everything about you, every other, f every all the little like flakes of your personality are shaved off until there's only one thing left. Um, and you're like, "Whoa, that's my purpose. This is the only thing I care about because everything else doesn't matter." And like you know, loss and stuff, I think causes that. And you meet someone who's like you know, a millionaire by age 35 because they, they relentlessly, you know, studied and 
and worked and we're totally impersonal in every relationship and like we're just driven um that's got to be trauma that's got to be something they they felt woefully insecure about at some age that drove them to be so um purpose-minded i think yeah i think elon musk is popping into my head right now (laughs) sure i mean what what hole is he trying to fill you know like god it's like just calm down dude you did it yeah you did it like relax a minute it's hard to stop it's like it's it's hard to stop once you have anything to not keep gambling it it's like i think it's a gambling it's i think we're programmed almost and we can we can fight it and we can win but um to have a if you have nothing you want a little you have a little well like i could risk this little and get a little more and then i'd be even better off and then it just even people with billions you got to maintain then you know and it's also like okay i get like how you always want a little bit more, but there are people who get to, I think a certain level of accomplishment or wealth or status or whatever, who's sort of like the light goes on and they go, okay, like that does happen. Sure. But then I think about people who are just pursuing billions upon billions and like not stopping and can't, you know, that seems to me like a pathology. Like not everybody, like you have to have a certain, like you were saying, maybe it's a trauma or some sort of wiring. But I'm like, what has got to be going on inside of somebody who they have like $10 billion and they're like, it's not enough. <laughs> I think to me, I can imagine what that would be like because I've never had billions of dollars or millions or even many thousands, but I can justify wanting more. I can give you any reason why I can give you a, a laundry list of positive reasons why more is I need more. And like, I, because I know that about myself, I just imagine like if you were a billionaire and you wanted to have a trillion, um, you could argue that it's for the good of humanity. You could argue that I, if I get enough money, I'll be able to do enough good. Even if you are the most selfish person in the world and never do any good, that narrative can be utterly real in your mind and when people critique your wealth you don't you like but they don't understand how much good i'm gonna do right and that's gotta be what's there i mean i'm sure there are some people who are just straight up like honestly evil and they're like i just want more money because fuck them yeah you know but um i also think there's also uh Everybody I've ever known who was better off than they um, deserved to be had a good guy narrative in their head. And I don't know, there's no cure for it other than um, suffering, unfortunately. You know, I mean, if someone who's really, really wealthy then suffers a loss, you know, you could write a, we could write a five minute Hollywood script right now about a guy who is utterly obsessed with wealth and then suffers a traumatic loss that causes him great grief. He realizes life is short and um, we're all going to die. And so we got to live well now and be good now. And then that person, you know, what is his name? Scrooge. Ebenezer Scrooge. Ebenezer Scrooge. He pulls an Ebenezer Scrooge. And 
what made Scrooge not want money so bad that he was willing to like fuck over Tiny Tim or whatever the story is? Well, it was trauma. It was he was haunted by three crazy ass ghosts, and some of them were pleasant but disturbing, and one of them was scary as fuck. Right? It's like hell came to him to his doorstep, and he faced it. And he saw the eternity in hell that I think I think he sees himself boiling in hell or something. I don't remember. But that's the fairy tale. That's yeah. how rich people come around to being chill or being more generous or whatever. And <laughs> I'm sure that's not the answer either. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not going to solve anything. We can't, like, wait around for that to happen. So, but, but Scrooge is likable in that story, even though he's an asshole. You read the story and you kind of root for him, and he's—that's the magic of, I think, that story. Is that? Well, we see ourselves in there, yeah. somewhere. Yeah. And it like it brings to like what you're saying too, like brings to mind stuff I've been reading recently. I'm paraphrasing, and I don't know where I'm pulling it from, but it was like uh, I want to say like the Sioux Indians, and then there are Tibetan cultures. I'm sure there are many different spiritual traditions and cultural traditions um, around the world in small pockets where they actually pray for suffering. And misfortune because it's they they pray because it will help them to awaken. It's like they go to you know they're like God, please in this lifetime, give me enough suffering so that I may be, my heart may be opened. Totally, you know, and like that sounds like counterintuitive, but that's basically what you're speaking to. Like, it's what the whole crucifixion is, and that's what it's it's one element of like the whole Catholic service of like staring up at a guy bleeding with crown thorns of crown, like crowns of thorns and blood and emaciated and hung up. And it's like, you're worshiping the suffering that restores your humanity. And, you know, it's like Jesus walking the earth as a God. If you believe the story, um, that's not what made him human. What made him human is that he died and he suffered. And it was like, that was crazy. That was that was that was the total antithesis of anything of what a god should or could do at the time when the story was came around. So it, it's true on every level. We, I think a, a lot of Christians un, unknowingly worship suffering, and maybe more, maybe should do so more knowingly. Um, you know, how many times do you, like growing up would go to church or something and like like worship a crucified human and then <laughs> it's go home of, and be like, I image. want donuts. Why don't we have the right donuts over here? <laughs> like you ate, you, you stole my toy, you know? Like, yeah. yeah. It's like, we're not even, it's not even clicking. The whole, the whole good thing about it is that it's not even clicking. And it also is completely morbid and is maybe too fucked up and we shouldn't worship suffering. So I don't know, but I don't think it's about, cause I was going to say, you can make a virtue out of suffering in a way that I think is unhealthy. But I, I do think that suffering is a, a irrefutable truth of human existence. Mm-hmm. We all suffer. That's part of the bargain from the moment you're born, you know. And so it's something to be confronted. Like the way through is through. And I think that one of the things you see over and over again in our culture, in particular like Western culture, uh, is this compulsive uh, behavior, these you know compulsive attempts to try to rid oneself of suffering through escapist means Mm -hmm. and uh, consumptive means, you know? And so I think that's like where the crux of it falls for me. It's like, well, what do we do with it? Like we're all miserable to some extent. (laughs) 
physically miserable, you know, at different times in our lives, emotionally, we're grieving or we're, um, heartbroken or we're stressed or, you know, we have some sort of illness or someone we love has an illness. Like this is all coming to all of us, whether it's here now, or it was here or it's coming down the road. And so it's like, well, what do you do with that? You know, like what's the proper response? And, uh, I guess that gets to the heart of religion, like some sort of formula <laughs> or approach. Yeah. Yeah. It's using escapism and, and stuffing yourself and buying a nicer house or whatever it is that you're trying to do to avoid suffering. It's definitely, it to me is like a gambler, like doubling down, like, Oh, you busted. Okay. I'm doubling down. Or like you, you can continue to avoid suffering, but eventually you bust and you probably are better off if you face suffering, accept mortality, accept limitation early or as early as you can. And, you know, the old fashioned way to deal that is just to live in the moment and, you know, um, recognize your own limited nature and, uh, try to hold that with you in the moment and appreciate every little butterfly, you know, that flies across your path because that's as good as anything. Um, but yeah, it's really hard to remember all that. Okay. I was just going to say, I'm with you. But like, and I, I'm amazed by this in my own life, like how easy it is to forget, despite the fact that I know better. It's like, appreciate every butterfly, appreciate every moment. Um, the way through is through. Like I can go through a, a million different maxims or, uh, you know, mm -hmm. ways of living, you know, that I know to be deeply true or at least deeply helpful to me. And yet what I, uh, the challenge on a daily basis for me to greater and lesser extents from day to day. Like some days I'm there, you know, more easily than others, but it's this challenge of forgetting this kind of constant need for renewal and reminding myself what my priorities are. It's mm -hmm. troubling how easily uh, it slips away from me. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't. I think in some ways it's because we're programmed to forget it because as great as like, you know, meditating and being Zen and, and recognizing your own inconsequentiality, um, as good as that is for being self-accepting, it actually is bad in a highly competitive, militarized world. I think like maybe history, like... <laughs> We survived, okay? Our ancestors are the ones who survived. And they didn't survive by meditating often. <laughs> they survived by being the most paranoid and the most murderous and the most wealth grabby. And so I think we are torn, knowing that our happiness relies on like relaxing and appreciating every moment. But our whole psychology, our whole culture, our whole biology, perhaps. I'm not a scientist. I don't know. But there's got to be something in there that's like, get up. Come on. Get that money. Get that shit. Get Survive. your shit straight. Yeah. Like, look at your neighbor. They're, are you better than them? Are they better than you? Watch out. Yeah. You know? Watch H out. Be hunter careful. Be hunted. Exactly. Ugh. And so it takes work, like anything, to stay reminded of that. But 
I don't think we should hate ourselves because we feel competitive and want to acquire more wealth. Um, we should just maybe acknowledge where it comes from. It comes from a place of paranoia, and maybe we don't need to be paranoid, and it doesn't actually l- get us anything. It doesn't make you better off. I have no idea. It's a, maybe another way to... One thing that helps is like surrounding yourself by people who are also uh, not assholes and who are themselves centered and self-accepting and have accepted mortality. Those people are really rare, but if you can find them. Yeah. The community that you live in matters. Yeah. You know, it's hard. I mean, like I, it's easy for me to start getting excited about ideas of utopia. Like I can find, like, where is that town? You know what I'm saying? Like, where is it? And like, where I want to be with those people, but like, you know, you're never going to hit it just right. Uh, but there is such a thing as living someplace that does not reflect your deepest values. Like there are, there are, or I guess the point that I'm making is that there are certain places that are healthier than others. It's not like it's just all the same and quit worrying about it. Like it actually does matter. So it's worth your while to spend at least a little bit of time and uh, calculation as you go about deciding where to put yourself to think about what's most important. You know, and here I, I say this sitting in the middle of Hollywood. <laughs> yeah, you're like the, this is like Babylon. I mean, you know, it's a big, huge mix of everything. And I think that's maybe part of the allure, but it's definitely got its toxicities. Sure. And you can make a great argument that it's the same thing. It's like, it's an endless circle, but should you move to um, paradise and be happy or should you move to hell and and try to be a good force there well this is this is how i rationalize it to myself okay, let's i have a great speaking of uh this isn't really an aphorism but speaking of like a pithy way to sort of <laughs> but it's like you don't smooth a piece of wood by rubbing it with silk you smooth a piece of wood by rubbing it with sandpaper. That's great. So whenever I question myself for choosing to live in Los Angeles, raise a family here with all of the stresses and, and you know, insanities that it entails, and especially as somebody who um, is seriously interested in matters spiritual, you know, and like how to find like peace and quiet, like silence is at such a premium here, you know, mm-hmm. and like wanting to get still and, you know, I'm sort of Buddhist leaning. And so it's like, how do you do that here? But I'm like, well, if I can do it here, I can do it anywhere. There you go. <laughs> you know, so this is that, this is my sandpaper. I'm smoothing myself out. That's how I sort of justify it. But there's also parts of me that's like, I'm just going to move to Colorado somewhere up in the mountains and make this a lot simpler, you know? It's, I, I relate to those things. I've done different versions of it, not Los Angeles, but other cities and, um, yeah. Where have you, like you were in, uh, Georgia as a child, but then you went on, like, I did, I don't even know your bio. Like, give us a brief idea of like where you've traveled. I grew up in Georgia, went to the university of Georgia in Athens. Then I went to, um, grad school in Iowa city. You did Iowa writers. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then I moved back to Georgia and worked full time for a year in my hometown at a college. And then I moved to Northampton, Massachusetts for a second grad program because I didn't want to live in my hometown and I had friends there. What was in Northampton? What's in Northampton? Uh, UMass Amherst. Okay, right. 
and I met a lot of great writers there and a lot of lifelong friends. Then I moved to New York. Then... What was that, like a like a taking a box kind of thing? Or was it like literary, I need to be where the action is? Or At that time, when I finished UMass, I had a great teaching job there, and I could have just stayed there, and it was really comfortable, and I loved the place. Um, if you've never been to Western Mass, it's kind of like a paradise valley for arts, and like rent's not that high, and it's beautiful weather. Um, but I felt like... Oh, I, I was tired of literary, and I wanted to I wanted to learn how to f- do filmmaking. So I was like, I'm either going to move to New York or L.A. And I have no idea where to begin or what. I just know that I want to try something risky and learn something new. Um, and right around when I decided to do that, some old friends of mine who I'd made a short film with once, they had raised enough money to make a movie. So we actually moved to the Poconos in western eastern Pennsylvania and made our first f- feature and after that, I moved to Atlanta, stayed on my brother's couch for half a year. Then the director I worked with got us a job doing some film stuff in New York, so I moved to New York, did that for a year. I think I moved to Georgia again when my mom got sick. I can't remember. Did she have cancer? Or? Yeah, she had cancer um, for like four years. She had a brain tumor. Oh. But so I would I was always kind of, oh, a film job. Oh, my mom's sick. And I was bouncing around for a few years and doing some online work. Uh, Then I moved to Philly because a friend of mine got sick and I took over some of his classes. So I'd never lived in Philly before. And I moved there and taught at UArts and was awesome. I love that city. I was only there for nine months. And then I uh, met someone, got married and she was going to uh, school in Portland. So we moved there there for two years damn you bounced around yeah that's good though yeah you, you read but you ready to put down some roots like after all this travel or do you like to be sort of itinerant i want to i i almost honestly don't have a preference i if i had a great job i'd stay and it was near family and friends i'd stay there if i didn't i'd move somewhere that was better but i um I only want to be near family. That's my main priority. And so that's why we're now going to move to Atlanta. But, um, and yeah, I'll put down roots as soon as I, someone gives me some money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but if they don't, it's all good. I'll do something else and I'll freelance or, or try to find another, another job. But, um, and then writing wise, like as you've done film, you've done literature, you're publishing this book now seems like you're on that track. Do you want to do both? Like, is it something that you have in your head? Do you have a plan? You know what I'm saying? Like some people have, feel like have like a, a big picture plan for how they want to build a career in the arts and other people. It's just like one day at a time, one book at a time, one project at a time. My goal is to get better at writing, at storytelling and writing poetry or whatever. Um, so as long as I'm learning, I'll jump around and probably waste years of my life learning new things that weren't going to help me you know sell or market or build my career in the old thing um but i don't i just trust that it'll all it'll all work out um as long as i'm learning because when i'm not learning and i'm just like okay time to write another book because this will help my career like in this particular genre whenever i've tried to force it and make smart career choices uh, i just get miserable and stifled and i don't know what to do so, um, 
my new goal is to finish uh, is to uh, be able to write a story that is a novel or a, or a short story or something that can work in a literary form and then um, if it's the right kind of idea my production company could adapt it and we could make it or sell it as a script so my new my only strategy is try to write one thing that is got multiple output can be outputted into multiple formats. Um, but I try not to worry about um, the, the track I'm on or anything. And Seems wise. I'm like, just, I've it, never been good at it. Well, but it's also antithetical, I think, to like genuine creative inspiration. It's like you do one or the other. Like, you know, like if you're, when I say inspiration, I just don't mean like, you know, finding the energy to get the work done or to sit in front of the keyboard. But I mean like inspired, like inspired, yeah. like artistic vision, you know, like it's kind of like, it's all or nothing. It seems like with that. And you've got to, it sounds to me like this is what you're saying. It's like, you've got to be paying very careful attention to like that feeling of freedom within that feeling of excitement within that you get from working on a project that's truly stimulating. And if you're working at cross purposes, and you're getting yourself bogged down in other concerns, which is very easy to do. I say this from experience. Sure. You know, it winds up uh, muddying things, you know. Periodically, I do have to say, okay, stop. You know, at one point, I was, like, obsessed with making collages. I, I loved it. Yeah. But I was like, stop. Like, you don't have to do everything you want to do. So sometimes I have to curb them and try to focus my efforts into things. So... I've tried to make it mostly writing. If it's writing, I'll let myself do it, and that can mean anything. But I won't like. I would love to. I would love to paint, you know, or like I would love to. I would love to learn how to dance, or to I can do teach, stand up. I can teach you if you want. <laughs> Thank you. I'll take you up on it. Um, no, but I won't. I won't take you up on it because it's not writing. So I was like, at some point, maybe when I was twenty-eight, I was like, for the rest of your life. You're going to want to do a lot of different things and creatively stick to writing. Just within that, there's plenty of diversity within that. Um, you do have to make some practical decisions. Yeah. You can't be all things. Yeah. And it's, it's not great. It's not fun. And, but you got to, that's growing up. You can't do everything you want. Yeah. I was just thinking about making a collage this morning, like just randomly. It's like, I don't know. Why don't I dick around with collaging? Like just as like a fun, creative, like way to pass the time instead of watching bad TV or... Or do it while you're watching bad TV. Yeah. That's my favorite. I used to watch Psych <laughs> and Collage. Yeah. And like, you know, pour my little... Right when IPAs came out, I was like, oh yeah, when they became quite popular and like, I was just in heaven for like one summer, <laughs> you know, <laughs> all alone. Right. <laughs> it's a glorious time. It's a golden age. Yeah. Uh, well, it's fun to meet you. Like I, I should tell people too, who are listening, you're excellent on Twitter. I feel like your Twitter, like there are certain people who really curate their Twitter and who consider it like an art project. And I feel like that's what you're doing. There's something poetic about it and disciplined about it and unfrivolous about it. Uh, even though there might be some frivolity in the creation, but like, it feels like kind of like a set. Um, and I've always enjoyed it. And so I've always kind of wondered who you are because your tweets distinguish themselves for that reason. And now you're sitting here. So it's a bit of a demystification. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's not as cool in real life. <laughs> <laughs> it never is. It never yeah. is. 
but congrats on the book thanks for making time to stop over good luck on the move to atlanta and on whatever comes next thanks a lot brad i really enjoyed it Okay, that's Mark Leidner. His story collection is called Under the Sea. It's available now from Tyrant Books. Mark Leidner, Under the Sea. Go get your copy right now. If you want to follow him on Twitter, his handle is at Mark Leidner. Thanks to the band Tiger in My Tank for the interstitial music. I should make a public correction here. Earlier this week, I received word from a gentleman named Sebastian Castillo. I believe that's his name informing me that he's in the band that made this music and that the band is called Tiger in My Tank and the album from which this music is taken is called uh, Cigarette Royalty. So huge thanks and apologies to those guys. Tiger in My Tank is the band. And thanks as always to Kill Rockstars and the band Stereo Total for the theme song music. If you would like to write to me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Let me know what you think. If you would like to support the show, patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Don't forget about the Other People app. The app is out there. It's a real live app. It's free. It's a good way to listen. Keep track of things automatically. Put it right there on your phone. What do you think of that? All right. All right. <laughs>